Hi, and welcome back to Wonder Woman, a podcast that tells the stories of inspirational women in history that you may never have heard of. I'm Dominique Roberts. And I'm Megan Armconnect. So today's podcast is about a woman who was known as the Chinese Marie Curie in her day. Her name was Shen Shu Wu, and she made incredible discoveries in nuclear physics, including disproving the law of conservation of parity, which was a big deal. We'll go back into that a little bit later because the beginning will be a little bit too much. But basically, it was Nobel Prize winning material, but she didn't win the Nobel Prize because because of her gender. I was just going to say that that is so interesting because... You know, I can't name a single famous female scientist apart from Marie Curie. Yeah, no, it is really interesting. And there's so many, there are a lot of women scientists that we just never really hear about. We just don't know about. And especially because a lot of them, it was just really hard to get in the field, especially um, in the 19th and 20th century, and to really have a career in that field. So Shin Shin Wu, she's amazing in what she did for the obstacles she surmounted. Um, as a woman in the sciences and also in academia, especially in the mid-20th century. Um, and so she was born in, in China. She's Chinese. Um, and she's born in a small town near Shanghai in 1912. And her father was, he really was a big supporter of female education. He had read a lot about Western democracies and women's rights. And he actually opened up the region's first school for girls and had Shinshung go to that school and where she where she graduated when she was 10 years old. So it was like an elementary school, but still she went as far as she could go. And her her education was really, really important to the family. And so they sent her to a boarding school in order to get more education. Um, and she attended the boarding school for about eight years. Um, and she and she left when she was 18 years old. Was that unusual for girls at the time to have that? formal of an education? It was, especially if they came from villages. Very, very unusual. And so this was very much um, a family effort, though. Her grandmother was really on board with it, and her father was as well. And so they pulled together the money to send her there. They noticed her talent and wanted her to be able to succeed and excel. And it was interesting, too, though, like how much how much choice she was able to have. She wanted to do the teacher training track while she was at the school instead of the academic track, simply because she thought she'd be able to get a better job after graduation. Mm-hmm. But when she was in school, she realized that that's not the best. That wasn't the best thing for her. She wanted to teach, but she realized that the girls that were taking um, the academic track were reading a lot more than she was. And she really wanted to be able to get a really well-rounded education. So she started reading her roommate's books after dinner instead of um, instead of sleeping. She would read. And with the different books she would read, she found that her favorite subject was physics. So after graduation, she was enrolled at the University of Nanjing. And she wanted to study physics, but she didn't feel she was prepared enough, especially because she hadn't taken the academic track. Her father, again, was very encouraging of her and said, no, you can do this. And he got her a bunch of math books and had, so she studied all the summer long and was able to go to school as a mathematics student and then soon transfer as a physics student where she excelled um, in physics. Wow, she and I have nothing in common. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I'm very much in the more humanities track, but but she's dedicated, definitely. And that's definitely a theme that we see in all the Wonder Woman that we do. But after she graduated from Nanjing University in 1934, she spent some time just working in different labs and one woman that she got to know had earned her PhD in physics from the University of Michigan and really encouraged um, Shen Shu to go to the United States because there was no graduate instruction in physics in China at the time. And so Shen Shu felt very strongly that she wanted to do this and go to the United States to get to further her education. And again, her family stepped in and helped. And this time her uncle paid for her passage to 
go to the United States. So she left China in 1936. 1936, so we're talking, this is the era of the Great Depression, right? Yeah. And it's the run-up to World War II, so... Exactly. There are rumors of war between China and Japan at this point. Yeah, exactly. So it is a kind of a tenuous time. And so she expected to earn a PhD from the University of Michigan and then come back home to China, be with her family, be a teacher. She had a lot of expectations with that. However, none of these really happened. She she never saw her family again after leaving China from World War II and also the, the Chinese Communist Revolution and the after effects of that. And she also ended up not going to the University of Michigan. She went to UC Berkeley instead. So she chose UC Berkeley for a few reasons. First, she had heard and heard correctly that there was more gender discrimination at the University of Michigan. She heard that women couldn't use the student union building, and that was really important to her, and so she didn't want to go there anymore. Second, she also met a young Chinese physics PhD student named Wan Chilu, and she fell in love with him. And so that was also a really big reason for her to stay in California. And also at this time, the Berkeley Physics Department was at the height of its fame. There were some really, really famous physicists there, including Ernest Lawrence and Robert Oppenheimer. And she really wanted to learn from them. Robert Oppenheimer, is he um, one of the scientists on the atomic bomb? Yeah, exactly. And so she decided to work with these physicists in the field of nuclear physics. And she also became acquainted with other really um, famous physicists at that time. And she was known for just being a really hard worker really on top of things, very, just like also a very classy woman. But also at this time, at the end of her first year in Berkeley, the physics department recommended both Shen Shu and Wan for fellowships. However, the university administration was prejudiced against Asians, and so they weren't granted a fellowship. So when Juan got a fellowship at the University of California Institute for Technology, he immediately moved to Southern California. And they didn't know it at the time, but they would spend the next 45 years commuting in order to be with each other. Back to kind of context. So in 1937, so this is a year after she's been in Berkeley, Japan invades China. And Shen Shu realizes that she's going to be cut off from home, that there's not going to be a way to get home. And she actually doesn't hear anything from her parents or brothers until after the war is over and after Japan surrenders in 1935. Um, And so she works really hard to try to forget the war and try to forget the trouble that her family is in. And she, again, takes advice from her father to kind of just put your head down and keep walking forward. And Marie Curie actually became her idol. And Marie Curie's story about being cut off from her home country, but yet becoming a successful scientist really resonated with um, Shinshu. So Shinshu felt this was her life. Physics was not just like a thing to do. It was her way of life. And she really dedicated all of herself into it. Um, And when she received her PhD in 1940, she was very well known in the field of like local fission. Um, She actually went on a US tour, like lecture tour about um, these recent developments in physics, but Berkeley again refused to hire her. Because um, she was a woman. Because she was a woman. and Or um, because she was Chinese, or both. It was both, actually. Mm-hmm. So she was because she was a woman, and also in 1942, so after Pearl Harbor, there was like anti-Asian oh, yeah. hysteria was at its peak. So even though the U.S. and China are were allies in World War II, just because she was Asian, mm-hmm. um, nobody would really hire her. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, it was difficult for her and her husband to um, find work, but they actually found work back east. One got a job working at a laboratory actually in Princeton, New Jersey, and Chen Shu got a job teaching at Smith College in Massachusetts. So they, again, they would commute and meet up in New York for the weekends. Um, it also was difficult because um, Smith College was mostly a teaching college and Shinshu wanted to do research. Um, mm-hmm. And so she wasn't get, getting that opportunity. 
Um, but at a conference that she went to, she met one of her, met up with one of her mentors again, and he recommended, "Hey, did you know that there's actually a shortage of phys- physicists in like in the universities right now because this is World War Two, mm-hmm. and kind of was called like a physicist war um, because they were needed. These physicists were needed to develop." different um, technologies and weapons at this time. So a lot of men who were working at these universities were gone on defense leave. And so her mentor, um, whose name was Ernest Lawrence, he told her that basically all these like Ivy Leagues, all these universities are looking for physics teachers and looking for physicists. You should apply. So she applied and she was given offers from eight different universities, including Princeton, MIT, and Harvard. Um, Two years before, she wouldn't have even been considered because she was a woman. Um, So she chose Princeton to be with Juan because she wanted to be close to him. And actually, at age 31, she was Princeton's first woman instructor ever. Cool. Which is pretty cool. Um, And then so she taught at Princeton for a year before she was hired by Columbia um, and she actually was hired to be a part of the Manhattan Project and to be part of the research team there. And after the and war... That, and the Manhattan Project is the creation of the atomic bomb, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Which was really big, um, which is why physicists were so needed from um, by the government at right. that time. But anyway, so after, she, they fin- after the war was over, she stayed at Columbia to teach and conduct research. Um, so she... Also um, had a child while she was teaching at Columbia, and she was really um, so. Shinshu was it was really important for her that there were opportunities for women in science to also have families, mm-hmm. and she would later say that there were three things required for a woman to be successful in science, and she said it was important to have a nice husband, a home near the lab, and good childcare. So those were the three things <laughs> she said that were absolutely necessary. Because it's, it's hard even now for working women to have families, and especially women in science to have families. I just can't imagine what it would have been like in the 1940s. You know, yeah. this is even pre-1950s concepts of, you know, domesticity. So I guess it would have been really unheard of to be a woman, a Chinese-American woman in science and a mother. That That's pretty um, groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And also, I think, hopefully a, a good role model or example for other women in the sciences like for her she made it possible I yeah mean, so and that's if it was possible in the 40s it's possible it, in it can happen it can happen now yeah yeah so just a little bit about her research because her research she made a lot of her really big discoveries after um when she was at columbia and so she decided to enter the field of beta decay okay so this podcast is more about history than science but <laughs> yet science and history also go together of course yeah. um and so understanding um Shinshu's research is important to understanding how big her discoveries were at the time mm. so um Shinshu was interested in beta decay so basically beta decay describes a particular way that atoms react in a nucleus and beta decay occurs when the nucleus of a large atom ejects a really super fast electron and, and then a, also a neutrino. So super, super tiny parts of an atom. And in this process, um, this, it changes into another element. So kind of just like really interesting subatomic cool. physics. You mean another element like from the periodic table? Of yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like it, it changes okay. into something else. It's pretty, pretty intense. Just because of those tiny, tiny parts those of, tiny, the tiny atom, parts. of the one atom, it mm-hmm. can change into literally another element. Yeah, so it's just like this very subatomic um, working going on. Okay, she's a smart cookie. <laughs> she's really smart and really patient. <laughs> so she thought it was really cool, but she also noticed that there were a lot of problems with beta decay theories at the time. So one theory predicted that a certain number of electrons would always come out at a certain speed, but no one had ever been able to prove it. Like, 
by experiments. But um, Shen Shu was actually able to prove this theory by using different materials and other scientists. And when she did that, she got exactly the same electron speeds predicted by this theory. So that actually cleared up like a lot of confusion on beta decay. Well, and it earned her a reputation for not only being the expert on beta decay, but also as an incredibly hardworking, trustworthy scientist that you could go back to her experiments and they would, they would, they would happen. So was she getting respect from her male colleagues at the time and contemporaries? And is her work being published in reputable journals or is she sort of doing this on her own without a lot of support or recognition from the community? Yeah, that's a great question. So the scientific community did definitely recognize what she was doing, and she did publish in a lot of journals. She was also very careful to make sure that the things she was publishing were in good journals as well. That was really important to her. But um, these theories, they, they changed... They changed subatomic physics and everything, but the Nobel Prize, it mm -hmm. wasn't just because of like criteria, it didn't actually qualify to win something like that. Okay. But people did recognize of what a phenomenal scientist she was. I mean, so in 1956, there are two of her colleagues that are working at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. So they're both um, Chinese physicists as well. So Tsung Dao Li and Chen Ning Yang, they are both. Chinese physicists that are working in the United States mm -hmm. and they actually come to her for advice and ask for her to help them understand like this newly discovered particle so they they've discovered like there's this newly discovered atomic particle called the K meson so again science time again mm -hmm. um the K mesons were these were newly discovered subatomic particles and they seem to violate basic laws of physics. So in layman's terms or in no, please, Megan's terms, please, basically please explain, trying I have no to idea explain what, what that means. Um, in physics, parity is a term used to describe like an overall state of being for like a system. Mm -hmm. So parity means that the physical formation of the system is symmetrical. So basically an experiment that was conducted in a mirror world and our world would be the same based mm -hmm. on this law this law called the law of the conservation of parity. But these particles that were newly discovered, these K-mesons and like other tiny, tiny particles inside the nucleus did not always behave that way. So it wasn't it was showing that it wasn't symmetrical and they couldn't figure out why. So Li and Yang proposed the idea that there was no symmetry at the subatomic levels, but they had no experimental proof for this. They just, they, they proposed that that was possible, but actually Shen Shu was the one who actually conducted the experiments okay. to show that in fact, the law of the conservation of parity did not hold up the subatomic level. But in this case, actually um, Li and Yang got the Nobel prize for their theory, but she didn't even get recognized in this case, like what? by the Nobel committee for the experiments that she did to prove this work. But anyone can just have an idea. I mean, I can, you know, have an idea in physics. It doesn't mean anything unless you prove it. That's. Do you think the reason she didn't get recognition or the Nobel Prize was because she was a woman? Or is that how it always works? I mean, what, what happened there? That seems so unfair. I think a big reason was because, I mean, I think part of it was because she was a woman. I think a big thing actually is just the politics of physics yeah. going on at this time. Yeah. There are a lot of people that were trying to prove this experiment at the same time. So I think kind of the committee said, well, there were lots oh. of people doing this here, but she actually was the first one to, do to, it. to prove it. And to so yeah. I think that it's kind of, it's just held by a lot of people that she should have also been acknowledged mm -hmm. and been um, a co-receiver of the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. for that for that theory and experiment together. I guess it's that way with with every award in every industry. It's very political and yeah, there's a lot working behind the scenes. So, but even though she didn't get the prize, she also she 
like she won a string of first. So she was like recognized a lot for her work. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the first woman to receive the Research Corporation Award. Um, she received like the Comstock Award from the National Academy of Sciences, which is an honor that's only given up like every five years. So like she got a lot of really great awards. She got tenure at, Pol- at Columbia. She also won the National Medal of Science. So she she did a lot. She actually was like the first living scientist to have an asteroid named after her. <laughs> Which, an asteroid? Yeah, so I guess that's a thing. I don't that's know. Cool. That's kind of cool. And for her, like, women in science, that was, like, a really important thing for her. She wanted, and she wanted her students, especially, like, her her female students, to be successful, but she would push them hard to help them succeed in a field that is sometimes really hard for women to um, to enter. Not because of that women aren't smart enough or things like yeah. that, but just because of the environment that's around them. Well, that's still true today with the STEM with the STEM fields. I mean, my my sister's in computer science, which is nothing compared to being a Chinese-American woman in physics in 1940s, but I know that even she today comes home and says that she's often one of the only girls in the class or in the project or in the interview group or or whatever. So, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And I think um, Shinshu definitely felt that pressure to succeed. She said, I sincerely doubt that any open-minded person really believes in the faulty notion that women have no intellectual capacity for science and technology, nor do I believe that social and economic factors are the actual obstacles that prevent women's participation in the scientific and technical field. So she's this really cool, influential, amazing female scientist, but why don't we ever hear about her or women like her? I mean, we it's just we never learn about famous female scientists, and I'm, I'm sure she wasn't the only one. It's yeah. just such a, a missing part of our history of the sciences. You know, we learn about all these, who, who invented the cotton gin, and who invented the printing press, and who invented this and that, and yeah, there's there's a lot of, of women who are just kind of left out of that type of, of history, because I, I had no idea that this woman even existed. I'd never heard of her before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of women like that too, especially in the sciences. I mean, part of it is because I I don't I, I'm not in a STEM field, so maybe I'm not searching that out. But maybe I should more because yeah. there are yeah. so, so many incredible women that are that made groundbreaking and world changing discoveries that sometimes we don't even know that yeah. we are indebted to. And I think there's also I know when you were trying to explain some of her work, there's probably a little bit of a mental block, like oh this is so complicated, and I don't probably so yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. It's much easier to understand what the invention of the printing press was, but. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, we're all capable of, of take, ha- having the patience and taking the moment to kind of wrap our heads around, okay, wow, she changed physics. I can kind of understand what that means and how cool that is. And yeah, and just kind of like talking about, kind of we were talking about how sometimes we just don't know how many incredible women that there are in the STEM fields, both today and in the past. Something really interesting that Shinshin Wu said about women physicists specifically was never before have so few contributed to so much under such trying circumstances. And I think that's really true. We don't sometimes know what these women had to go through and what what obstacles they had to overcome in order to be successful in their fields. Um, but she certainly was a very determined woman and um, can really just be a beacon to so many women and men in, in the STEM fields. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. That was so fascinating. I had no idea anything about this woman. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Wonder Woman is edited by Dominique Roberts with original music by Matthew Gregory. 